You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, I want to start this morning uh, with a little bit of a confession, uh, and it's this. Uh, I, I tend to be a little bit of a nerd, and I'm okay with that, okay? Uh, I, I really like to research things. I, I like to get into stuff. If, if we're even going to buy something in our house, like a new coffee maker, I want to research coffee makers. I want to know everything there is to know about coffee makers, and I actually really enjoy that. It kind of drives my wife crazy, but I just like to know stuff, and I like to research stuff, and I like to see the consumer reviews and know what's good and what's bad, and, and I'm kind of into that. And so uh, one of the things in my own life that I've kind of been into over the last few years is really researching uh, the, my family history and our genealogy. Uh, I kind of want to get some questions answered about who are the Reardons and where did we come from? Like, I kind of want to know, like, who are my people? Like, where, where are they in the world? Uh, where did we come from? I, I have this, like, you know, I have this deep desire that's probably not true that, like, I would find out that, like, I'm an earl or, like, 10,000th in line to be king somewhere, like, or maybe there's land somewhere that our family owns that I can vacation on. I don't know. I've heard that. I've heard that people have, like, looked into their genealogy and they turn out that they're, like, you know, uh, they're going to be knighted or something. I just think that'd be cool. Like, I would go by Sir Adam. That'd be okay with me. Uh, and so, so what I did recently, I've been saving up for this for a while, is I actually uh, went onto Ancestry.com and I signed up uh, for the DNA test. And so the, the long story short is you spit in a bottle and they analyze it. And so, uh, so I've done that and now I'm waiting six to eight weeks until that returns. And so I, and, and here's the thing, like our family is supposed to be from Ireland. Reardon was O'Riordan and eventually got changed. But here's, here's the deal, if I'm being honest with you, I'm ready to be totally surprised. Like, you know, like, hey, you're a Norwegian or, you know, I mean, something totally not Irish, then I'll have to change uh, some things about my life. But I'm interested in that. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been working on, on kind of the family tree because as this information comes in, potentially what they could do is tie you uh, to people who have similar results as you. And maybe you'd find some family stuff. So online, I've been working on our, our family tree. And uh, due to technology, I've actually made it further in the last couple of weeks than I've made it in the last couple of years. It's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, there's actually people that go out into uh, uh, all over the world, and they go out in, into, in, into graves, and they go and take the information, and they actually enter it online, and they, they kind of connect people together. And so I've been able to dig back and find some names that I didn't have before, which is really, really interesting. And, and for me, I'm just fascinated by that. Some of you think that's kind of nerdy, and I, I already admitted I'm cool with that. I'm all right with that. Now, the reason I share that with you is because uh, over the course of the summer, we're, we're studying the book of Malachi. And one of the things that, that I think about, it kind of hit me this week, is we study the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things we're doing is actually studying uh, the family history uh, of the church. And so if you're a Christian, as we look into the Old Testament, what we're really doing is kind of going through uh, God's photo album uh, of our faith family. And so as we study through Malachi, what, what we see is uh, some of the history of our family, some of the history of our people, some of the history of the relationship between God and his people. And we kind of have our work cut out for us this morning because before we really jump into Malachi chapter 2, I think we have to, to kind of do a, a little bit of updating. I think we've got to do a little bit of recounting where we've been. Because if we don't first understand 
the why, then it really affects the what. If we miss out on God's heart for what, what he's communicating to us, uh, we miss out on, on really what this means for us and why it's so important. In fact, it, it reminds me of a story. Uh, it reminds me of a story that I've heard that maybe you've heard before, and there's all kinds of variations of the story, but it's about a woman who uh, makes pot roast, and she makes a really great pot roast, and, and she's newly married. And, and so her and her husband are, are kind of working in the kitchen together, making this pot roast. And this is like world famous. This is like her dish. You know, this is the thing that she makes. It's really, really good. And so her husband's assisting her in the kitchen. And one of the things he notices is that every time she makes a pot roast, before she cuts it, cooks it, she cuts the ends off of the pot roast and then puts it in the pan. So he asks her, he says, honey, how come, how come you always cut the ends off the pot roast? And she says, well, I don't really know. That's just the way that my mom always showed me how to do it. She said, that's really a good question. So she called up her mom and said, hey, mom, I'm making the pot roast, you know, our family pot roast. And my husband asked me, how come we always cut the ends off the pot roast? And her mom went, you know, that's a really great question. I don't know why we cut the ends off of the pot roast. That's just the way that my mom always showed me how to do it. So mom now calls her mom and says, hey, mom, your granddaughter is making the world-famous family pot roast, and she has a question. So grandma says, well, what question do you have? She says, well, how come we cut the ends off of the pot roast? And she's like waiting for this great mystery to be unlocked. And there's this pause on the phone. And grandma kind of responds and says, well, I have no idea why you cut the ends off of the pot roast. I cut the ends off so it would fit in my pan. <laughs> and see, if we don't understand the why, then we kind of look foolish in the what. And if we really want to understand God's word, we also have to understand God's heart. And so I kind of want to start with, with just the gospel, just, just the plain truth that God is a God that gives himself to us. Okay, God has offered himself to you and to me. All the way back in the Old Testament, God offered himself to the nation of Israel, that God is a God that pursues us, that God is a God that chases after us, that God is a God that woos us with his love, that God is a God that is patient with us, that there's even times that God allows us to find the bottom of the barrel so he can just be there when we discover that the things that we were pursuing weren't actually good for us, that, that there's even times that God walls us off from going certain ways because he so desperately desires that we would return to him. And see, in the Old Testament, God would give himself to people through this big biblical word, covenants. And the way we could think about a covenant is like God making a promise. And in fact, if you really wanted to understand a covenant, maybe the best way to think about it is like a wedding vow, uh, that a, a husband and his wife would stand before God and uh, their friends and their family and they would make a promise. They would make a covenant with one another. And that covenant is that I'm going to love you and you're going to love me till death do us part. And if you kind of go with those traditional vows, it's, hey, I'm going to love you when it's great and I'm going to love you when it's not great. I'm going to love you now, but I'm also going to love you for richer or poorer and sickness and health till death do us part. And it's a promise that, hey, I'm going to love you and you alone. And we're in this thing together until the very end. And see, God makes those kind of promises 
and covenants and the things we have to know about God's promises and his covenants. It's always a two-way street. God says, I'm going to give myself to you, but, but here's how you're going to operate in this covenant or this promise. In fact, one of the things that we have to remember, one of the things we have to think about is that when God offers himself to us, uh, he offers himself to us through covenants and promises. And for the nation of Israel, the only reason they exist is because God promised them that they would exist. Without God's covenant, there is no Israel. Without God offering himself and making a covenant with Abraham, there's no, there's no nation. There's no King David. There's no country. That when God gives himself to us, it establishes us. When God gives himself to us, it's his word and his will that controls and guides us. And so in the Old Testament, God offers himself to the nation of Israel through these promises and covenants. This is why there's so much history in the Old Testament that we have to understand, which is why God is referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's remember who he is. It's why when we talk about God delivering out of the promised land, because he promised us that he would, he promised us that he would give us the promised land. He promised us that he would forgive our sins. He promised us that he would dwell in the temple. He promised all those things to them. But for us, God offers himself to us through Jesus. See, we're not under the Old Testament covenant. We're under what I would call the New Testament covenant, and that's Jesus. That the reason we don't do animal sacrifice, the reason you don't go to the temple, the reason that you don't have to operate under the laws, because all those things were satisfied and fulfilled in Jesus. This is the way he says it. Luke chapter 22, 19 and 20. This is uh, Jesus at the Passover meal, Last Supper. And as he's with his disciples preparing to go to the cross, preparing to die in our place for our sins, that he would be dead and buried and rise again on the third day victorious, he tells them this is really significant. Verse 19, and he took the bread and we had given thanks. He broke it to them saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper saying, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, hey, there's a new covenant. And the new covenant's all about Jesus. It's that the wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus, that his body would be given, that his blood would be shed, that he would die in our place for our sin, that the wrath of God would be satisfied, that we could become adopted sons and daughters of God, fully accepted, fully forgiven, that God would put his Holy Spirit inside of us as an inheritance, a seal, and his power. And Jesus says, I'm the one that's the new covenant, that you can know God, that you can have a relationship with God, that you can be forgiven, that you can have joy and hope and faith and eternal life. It's all because of Jesus. And see, the reason we have to study our family history is because as we study our family history, what we realize is that there's this common thread and this common theme that plagues our family history, and it has plagued us for thousands of years. And the thing that's affected us and the thing that's plagued us is this, is that we tend to forget God, ignore God, and we rebel against the God who has freely given himself to us. That as we go all throughout our family history, we see that we have this problem with sin. We have this problem that we desire things other than the God that has given himself to us. 
Uh, we desire to rebel, we desire to run, we desire to try to be satisfied in other things. And the reason we have to see it, the reason we have to know it is because we want to be able to do something about it. Because God has also promised himself to us through Jesus. And the reality is, is that God's best for us is always found in his presence. The best possible thing, the thing that we desire, the thing that we want to be satisfied, the thing we want to achieve in life, that none of those things will be fulfilled in our lives outside of Jesus. That in Jesus we find our joy, in Jesus we find our satisfaction, in Jesus we find our significance, in Jesus we find our hope, in Jesus we find our purpose. We won't find those things anywhere else. I love the way that Jesus says it in John 10.10. Because he gives us kind of two sources for these things, two sources for life with two outcomes. He says it this way, the thief, talking about the devil, the adversary, he says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, hey, there's this one avenue, there's anything outside of me. He's like, the the, the things that glimmer and shine in the world, the things you can pursue, you can go after those things, but ultimately they lead to death. He says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I love the way that Jesus says that. Like, hey, I've come to give you life. If, if that wasn't, like, if that weren't enough. But he's like, hey, I've come to give you life, but I've come to give it to you abundantly. That we could experience the power and the working and the joy and the hope and the faith and the grace that comes from Christ in our life, that God wants us to live in this life, not just eternal life, but in this life as well. And God's best for us is always found in his presence. Now the beauty of the new covenant, that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done the work for us. That we don't achieve God's favor. We don't have to work for it. I don't have to try to be good to get God's approval. I don't have to follow a bunch of rules so that God would love me. I don't have to strive to get God's attention. Because Jesus is the source, because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, because Jesus died in our place for us and and rose again, my salvation is in him, my identity is in him, so that I'm already fully accepted, I'm already fully loved, I already have God's attention, that when we're forgiven by Jesus, you are so loved by God that you could never be more loved by God and you could never be less loved by God. You were accepted, you are loved, that you are adopted. And so what happens is, is that having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God, we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have a profession of faith that the Scriptures then call us to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what we do is we rest and we live in Jesus. And I, I was studying this week, and I found a pastor that said it this way. I got I respect, said the Christian life could really be described by three words. That what it looks like to live for Christ and walk with Christ really comes down to to kind of three verbs, these three words. The first one is this, fear. And what we mean by fear is that the fear of the Lord means that I carry around with me such a deep awareness, an awe, a reverence for the power, the holiness, the wisdom, and the grace of God that I wouldn't think of doing anything other than living for his glory. Uh, the, the psalmist says, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
that understanding that there's nothing better, there is nothing greater, there is no place other than God that I would find my joy, my hope, my satisfaction, understanding that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the author of life, the creator of all things, that he is holy, 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 and yet he has given himself to us, that we would have this fear, this awe, this reverence, this understanding of the awesomeness of our God. And that with that, we would choose to make our highest allegiance with him and him alone. And that we wouldn't desire to rebel against him or do things that are outside of his goodness. That the second word he used was love. That the fundamental difference between holy living and selfish living is what has captured the love of my heart. That if I love God more than anything else, I won't focus all my energy and all my needs and wants. Instead, I'll pursue the kingdom of God in word, in deed, in thought. That love isn't just kind of this holding hands and singing kumbaya and feeling good thoughts. That Christianity isn't all rainbows and unicorns. That love means sometimes I have to deny myself. That love means sometimes I have to give things up. That love means that I would choose not to always pursue what I want to pursue, but rather I would pursue the things that God has said is good for me, that I would rather pursue his kingdom than my kingdom. And the last word that he uses is this, act. That part of being a Christ follower isn't just fearing and loving, but it's also working itself out in action. That acting is this God-focused living is not just about the attitude of the heart and the mind, but about a functional lifestyle that our Father has precisely revealed his will for us in his word. And our principal job is to simply obey what has already been revealed. It's interesting because I talk to and I meet a lot of Christians. And I talk to so many Christians that are like so obsessed with what God will reveal next to them through the Holy Spirit that they forget about what God has already revealed to them. That instead of asking God what is next, our, our desire is just to be faithful to what he's already spoken. That we are overeducated when it comes to the scripture, but we don't really walk into obedience to what he's already said. So that if we feared him and we loved him, then we would act according to his word. That we would decide that God is a good, good father, that his way is the best way. His yes is good for us. His no is good for us. And we would make the adjustments in our lives to do what he has told us to do. I had a college professor that said it this way. He said, if you ever come to a crossroad where you disagree with the word of God, you're wrong and you need to make the adjustment. And I think that's true. That we as Christ followers don't have the ability to go, hey, Jesus, you know that thing you said that kind of convicts me, that I kind of struggle with that? So I'm just going to strike that one from the record and kind of rewrite it. We don't get the availability to do that. But as Christ followers, we live and we die. We also thrive by the word of God. And see, the reason this is so important is because this is what God holds against Israel. This is what God charges them with. He says, here's the deal. I love you. I have given myself to you. I have sent prophets to deliver my word to you, but you still don't know me. You still don't love me. You don't honor or worship me. You don't listen to my word. In fact, what he says today is you have gone so far is to rewrite what is good and is evil. And God says, the things that I call evil, you call good. And that's a problem. That God is a God that makes covenants and promises. 
And see, the way we talk about that as believers today, on this side of the New Testament, is we'd say God is faithful. That God is faithful to his word. That God always holds up his end of the promise. God always does what he says he's going to do. That God always fulfills his promises. That God is a God that is a faithful, covenant-making God. And as he speaks to the nation of Israel, what he says is, I have given myself to you. I have made promises to you. But you have chosen not to have a relationship with me. You have chosen, rather than to live in my goodness, to live in my presence, you have chosen to pursue the things of this world. And God says, that's what I hold against you. Now you might go, hey, that kind of sounds mean about God. Except for the way that Malachi starts is the people of Israel are asking this question, God, why aren't you blessing us? Like they're a little upset with God saying, hey God, how come you're not blessing us personally? How come you're not blessing us as a nation? And God says, hey, the issue isn't that I'm not blessing you. The issue is that you don't really know who I am. You don't really love me. You don't really have a relationship with me. And my best for you is always found in my presence. And so you want my best, but you're trying to find it in other places and in other things. So God says, return to me. That if you want my blessing and if you want my best, you find it in my presence. And so as we dive into Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10, this is how God begins to speak to them about this next issue. He says it this way. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our Father? So here's what God starts reminding the nation of Israel. Isn't there one Father? Isn't there one God? And of course, they go, yeah, 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 the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our forefather. And see, what God's reminding them is that he is their creator, that he has made the world and he has made them, and so all things are his. But on top of just being the creator of all things, he is also their father, that he is the source of their identity and their inheritance. And God begins to speak to them and says, I've created you. I've adopted you, I've made you into the people that you are, and yet you are profaning the covenant. That's strong language. It says the covenant I've made to you, it's not that you just don't get it, it's that you profane it. It's that you disobey it, you disregard it, you try to bring things into it that don't belong there. In fact, if I kind of had to put, I think what God is saying into our own terms, I think this is what God is saying, He's saying, you want to believe in me enough that you get blessed. But you don't want to believe in me enough that it would actually change your life. And God says, by the way, I don't operate that way. I'm not a lucky charm. I'm not a rabbit's foot you put on your keychain. He says, you, you kind of treat me like a cosmic vending machine. You approach me, you want to hit the right buttons and pull out the things you want to be blessed with. But God says, that's a profaning my covenant. That's not what I've called you to. That's not the kind of relationship I've invited you to. He continues it in this way, and he begins to reveal their hearts and their faithlessness this way. Malachi chapter 2.11, he says, Judah has been faithless. And now as you see that word Judah, Judah is another word for Israel. Uh, that Judah is the, lie, the line of kings that oversee uh, Israel. So last week as we were in scripture, we saw that it was all about the Levites and Levi, which was a, another tribe. But when he talks about Judah, that encompasses all of Israel. It says, Judah has been faithless. 
and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. He said, well, how have they done that? He says, they have married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So here's what God begins to talk to. This is one of the disputations between God and Israel, a disagreement they have that God says, hey, you don't love me, you don't honor me, you don't worship me, you don't listen to me, you don't want me, you just want my blessing. And God goes, here's one of the ways I know this. Here's how, you, how the symptoms of it. You don't listen to me when it comes to marriage that I have put some boundaries and some things that are good for you in my word about marriage, but you don't listen to me. In fact, I know that because you marry people who don't believe in me or worship false gods. See, according to the scripture, believers marry believers. Christians should marry Christians. That's God's design. That you would be yoked would be the biblical language of someone who believes the same things that you believe. So according to Scripture, an unbeliever can marry an unbeliever. They believe the same things. But in Scripture, a believer and a non-believer being yoked together, God says, that's not my best for you. That's not what I desire for you. In fact, I think what God says is, hey, you might have some troubles and some problems that you don't even know about. So I'm trying to protect you. Now, here's the thing, because but we're studying our family history, and the nation of Israel is not that different than us in this way, that we don't like to be told what to do. Uh, I, I just have told you before that if somebody tells me what to do, there's that rebellious thing inside of me that just kind of comes up inside of me and says, you want to bet? Like, you want to bet? You want to you figure this out? And so God says, hey, I have this thing about marriage, and the nation of Israel is like, well, who are you? Come on, God, how, who, you can't tell me who to marry. And God says, hey, don't forget, I'm the guy that created you. So I might know some things about you that you don't know because I designed you. Uh, let's not forget that I designed relationships. And let's not forget that I created marriage. So God says, under this criteria, I do get to tell you what to do. I know more than you. I created this thing. I put this together. And if you want the best, then God says, we're only going to find it in him. Because marriage was created by God. It was a gift that he gave it to us. If it weren't for God, there wouldn't be marriage. In fact, if it weren't for God, like at one point it could just be a bunch of dudes hanging out in a garden. And God decided, hey, that's not good. And so he creates Adam and Eve, man and wife. And God says, I want you to know that there's a plan. There's something good that I want to give you. And see, maybe the two most important decisions you would make in your life is Answering these two questions is, who is your God and who is your spouse? That those two questions, those, those two things have incredible influence in your life. So God speaks to the nation of Israel and says, hey, here's, here's how I want you to approach marriage. I want believers to marry believers. Unbelievers marrying unbelievers, but this unevenly yoked thing. This isn't what I desire for you. I, I had a, a man in my life who discipled me when I was in high school, and he would always tell us this. He would say, missionary dating usually leads to misery. He says, guys, if you think she's just so cute that you're going to get her saved, 
that probably won't work. And he would also tell us that missionary marriage usually leads to a miserable divorce. That God's design isn't to go, hey, she's so cute or he's so handsome that maybe I'll yoke myself up, I'll hitch my wagon to that, and that maybe sooner or later I'll, I'll pull or sway or somewhere we'll kind of agree that that's not God's best for us. In fact, you've been lied to because what all the stats say is that the Christian divorce rate is really, really high. And it's probably higher than God wants it to be, but it's not nearly as high as they tell you that it is. In fact, if you really do the study, what you find out is this. The highest divorce rates in our nation are between couples who do not believe the same things. That one of the things that they interview people and talk about is what led to your divorce. They go, hey, we just believe in totally different things. The highest success rates, the highest uh, people of staying together are really people who believe the same things. In fact, most study would say that you see the most long-term committed, loving marriages and people who believe the Bible, love Jesus, and keep their commitment to one another. And I just find that fascinating. So here's what I want to do for just a second, and I know it's going to be totally uncomfortable, and it's just uncomfortable for me as it is for you, but I love you too much not to say it. Here's the deal. I want to talk to all the singles in the room for just a second. So as, my, as the great prophet Beyonce would say, for all the single ladies and all the single dudes, just want to talk for a second. When it comes to dating, you have six options. I love this. I read an article about this, and I'm just going to tweak this. But if you're single and you want to be married, there's six options that you have. And so if you're single, you should take notes on this, okay? You should, you should write this down. You have six options. Here they are. The first one is you can just sin. You can sin. You can decide you're going to date who you want to date. You're going to rebel. You're going to do it your way. And you're not going to let God have any sway, any influence, or any say in your, in your dating relationship. You could do that. I'm not saying you should, but you could. You could decide, hey, I'm going to date outside of God's will and outside of his word and hope for the best. I love you enough to tell you, I just don't think it'll work out the way you think it will. So one, you can sin. Two, you could surrender. You could just say, you know what, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think I'm ever going to meet Mr. Right or Miss Right, and so I'm just not interested in dating at all. I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm just going to buy a lot of cats and live out the rest of my life. Okay, you could do that. You could just choose no dating. I'm just done with it. I'm just frustrated, and you could be that person. Number three, you could settle. See, I think most people start out with an ideal of this is what my knight in shining armor looks like or this is what she looks like, and you kind of have a list. And see, what can happen is, is if you don't meet the right people, what happens is you, you start to take things off the list. And so you might have like, hey, I'm looking for a guy that would be a gentleman and, and he would be able to provide and he would be a, a guy with morals and he would love Jesus and, and we would, you know, have the same dreams and hopes. And you could do the same thing, guys. You could say, hey, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for a girl that smokes and drinks and chews. You know, I mean, I'm looking for a girl that has uh, she has manners, and she's kind, and she's loving, and, and all these things, and she's beautiful, and you can have these lists, and what happens is, is, if you date the wrong people, and if you handle dating the wrong way, what happens is you end up with one thing, and it's like, has a heartbeat. You're like, that's what I'm looking for, has a heartbeat. Are they alive? I mean, are, are like, and you can just, you can end up in doing this, and what happens is you see people that do this, that date, they're like the chronic daters, they date whoever's available, it doesn't work out, and they start the process over again. It's like the country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. And you could do that. Which would also mean, number four, you could just suffer. 
You could just kind of be the chronic person that's always dating the wrong person. Heartache after heartache after heartbreak after heartbreak, wondering why me, how come it always ends this way, and you end up just with a hard heart. You just end up going, I would rather be with someone for a little bit than be with no one for a while. Uh, Number five, you could turn into the person that strives. Uh, This is the person that's like the professional, I'm going to find a spouse. You ever met this person before? That they put in 40 plus hours a week in finding the person they're going to marry. And so this is the person that like you meet them and uh, like the first time you meet them, they start naming your future children, you know, because they're like, hey, this might happen. Uh, When I was in college, we said that there were people who went to school and they were either after the MR degree or the MRS degree. These were these kind of people like we are here for one reason to find somebody and get married because that's what we're going to do. The problem is if you become that person is you become so obsessed with getting married that you can actually fall more in love with the idea of marriage than actually loving the person that you're with. And while the Bible talks a lot about loving marriage, it also talks more about loving and honoring and cherishing the person that you're with. Number six, you can just take a little bit of solace. See, I think our culture, especially Christian culture, puts a ton of emphasis on are you dating, are you engaged, or are you about to be married? And I would tell you, I wouldn't add pressure to something that's already got a lot of pressure, okay? I wouldn't add stuff. Here's, here's what I would tell you. We worship a guy named Jesus who was single. And the Bible says that Jesus lived a holy, perfect, good life. And so if you're single, here's the thing. You're okay. Like, you don't have to find somebody today to be fulfilled. You don't have to find somebody today to have purpose and meaning. And sometimes people will ask, well, what about legacy? Well, let's just talk about the legacy of Jesus, a guy who was never married. And 2,000 years later, we still worship him and love him, and there's still a movement going on in his name. So singles, you have a lot of options. But the option that I, I think you should consider the most is asking the question, what would be God's best for me? What would be God's heart for me? What does his word have to say about my situation, who I am dating, or who am I not dating, because I believe God's heart for us is one as a good, good father who knows way more than we know. And then God God keeps speaking to the nation of Israel on this matter. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, and the second thing you do, so God says it's not even that you've kind of restructured marriage, it's not that you've redefined marriage, but sometimes people say, hey, could the Old Testament really have a lot to say about our life today? And God's saying, hey, you're rewriting marriage. Hey, you're trying to reset the boundaries of marriage, what it is, what it isn't. That seems pretty relevant to our lives today. So not only that, he goes, but the second thing you do is you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Verse 14 But you say, why does he not? It says, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? It says there's two things I'm kind of upset about. Because the first is that you've kind of totally rewritten this idea of what marriage is. 
And then he says, you've been faithless. In fact, one of the things you could do is if you want to go home and reread through Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 17, is just pay attention to how many times God uses the word faithless. And what God really tells them is you've been faithless to me and you've been faithless to your spouse. And God says, it grieves my heart, but it also makes me angry that I would be a faithful God who has offered himself to you and you would decide not to be faithful to him or to the person you're married to. And God kind of frames it up this way. He says, hey, you had your special wedding day. You, you got the tux, you got the gown. Maybe you went to the courthouse. Maybe you got married on the beach. However you did it, God says he attended your wedding day, that he was there. He may have not been on the official guest list, but he was there. And when the this contract was signed by your best man or your maiden honor. There was another contract that was signed. And it was between you and God. And see, I, I get the privilege of doing weddings, and there's always that moment where you sign the contract, and I don't have the greatest handwriting, so the thing that I'm probably the most nervous about in a wedding is signing the wedding certificate, because it'll look all beautiful, and it's like, what's that hot mess? I'm like, that's the pastor's signature. What I always tell couples when I marry them is, hey, why, why we are signing this, what you need to know is that God is signing this as well. So that what we desire is for God to put his thumbprint, his signature on your union. And what God says in Malachi is that he does. God says, hey, I was there when you said your vows. You thought you were just saying them to one another. You weren't. God says, yeah, I was there listening. I was there agreeing. And he says, when you two became one, God says, who do you think did that? How in the world do you think two people become one flesh? And God says, that's, that's the work of the Spirit. God says, whether you like it or not, I'm involved in this thing. It's my idea. I created it. I'm involved in it. It's by my power that two become one. That's sexually, physically, but it's also spiritually. And God says, I'm the one that winds you up. I'm the one that brings you together. And he says, and don't forget that your relationship with him includes your relationship with your spouse. God makes it really clear to say, hey, you can't say you love me if you're faithless to your spouse. You can't claim to be in good relationship with me if you have a horrible relationship with your spouse. That the family unit becomes a lifelong community group. And that you love Jesus together or you don't. You, you walk together. You do life together. And God says, I am involved in this. This is how I wanted life to be. My spirit is involved in this. And he reminds the nation of Israel, maybe like he reminds us this morning, that God has designed marriage to be both sacred and significant. The fact is, is that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a living testimony to the world that our marriages actually display to those around us what the love of God is like. That how in the world could two people stay together for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and really love each other? In a world where people get married by Elvis in Vegas and divorce a month later, in a world that doesn't even remember what marriage is, God says, don't forget, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered marriages reflect his heart and are a testimony to people. 
And that maybe one of the greatest testimonies we have to impact a culture that thinks so little of marriage is how we go about our marriages. In fact, Jesus takes us to a next level when he says, hey, don't forget that the way a man loves his wife is supposed to be like Jesus loves the church. And he says, ladies, don't forget that the way you love your husband reflects the way the church is supposed to love Jesus. That God says, I want you to know that marriage is so significant, it's so sacred, that it's not just about loving the person in front of you and having the best time of your life, that it's actually more than that, that it's a living testimony of how Jesus loves the church and how the church responds to the love of Jesus. And then God gets to it. And and this is kind of like a Muhammad Ali jab-jab cross. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. Hey, hey guys, if you haven't caught on on this, God puts the burden on the men. And so guys, if you feel the burden this morning, that's not me putting the burden on you. That's scripture putting the burden on you. And what God says is, hey, guys, guard yourself in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now, one of the things that's interesting is back in the Old Testament times, a woman couldn't divorce her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife. Things have changed. 21st century America, a wife can divorce her husband, but I think the burden still is on the husband. He says, For the man that does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? God says, guys, I I love you and I've given myself to you. And the best that I can offer you is in my presence. But here's the problem, Israel. Here's the problem, family. Here's the problem, people. He says, you're faithless to me and you're faithless to your spouse. Because the problem is that we, we don't have faithful men loving God. We don't have faithful women loving God. We don't have faithful men loving their wives. We don't have faithful wives loving their husbands. And God says, it wearies me. It wears me out. It exhausts me because I have something that's so much better for you. And what's taking place in the nation of Israel is kind of the same thing that happens today in America. Is the Bible uses this language about the wife of your youth that a husband and a wife would get married early on And then usually sometime in the age of 40, the husband would hit a midlife crisis looking for purpose, adventure, and joy and decide that he would trade in his wife for a younger model. That he would try to go, hey, I'm going to leave the wife of my youth because she's older now. My life isn't filled with purpose, joy, and excitement. So what I might need is a new wife. So the man would divorce his wife, leave his kids. And, And what God is also saying is that he would choose to divorce his wife for a person who believed in a pagan God, deciding that that's where he would find his joy, his comfort, and his satisfaction. See, maybe one of the biggest 
lies the devil tells us in the regard of marriage is that marriage is all about just being happy. I can't tell you how many people I've heard go through divorces that end up saying, well, I just want him to be happier. I just want her to be happier. Don't I deserve to be happy? God doesn't want, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I think if I divorce her and marry her, then I'll be happy. And I guess it all depends on how you define the word happy. Because losing your wife, wrecking the life of your kids, creating a culture where all the holidays are going to be awkward, where you will now have strained relationships with your grandkids, that just doesn't seem like a great definition of happy to me. And yet it's kind of a fool's parade where so many people think happiness lies on the other side of divorce, that happiness lies with a new marriage or a new spouse, which is also why we can see people today who are married their third, fourth, or fifth times and they still haven't found what they're looking for. Because I think what God reminds us of is that happiness and holiness go hand in hand. That sometimes our happiness is found on the other side of holiness. That if we really want the best, that it's always found in God's presence. And that we will never find happiness at the sake of holiness. That sometimes the grass looks greener on the other side, and it's only because the grass is directly over the septic tank. So don't ever exchange holiness for something that you think will make happy. Now, something we got to address for just a second is some of your Bibles in verse 16 doesn't say what we put up on the screen. Uh, we use the ESV translation. And the ESV has gone through the exercise of translating this to the best possible way they think it translates to English. And they translate it to say, a man that does not love his wife and divorces her covers his garments with violence. But what some of your Bibles say is this, God hates divorce. And they both kind of mean the same thing. Now we have to talk about this for just a second because this verse has been misused for a really long time. And see, what it's been used to say is that God hates divorce, and we've meant that to mean two things, that God hates it so much that even if you're in a situation that's horrible, you should stay in it. It's also been used to say that if God hates divorce, then he must hate people who have been divorced, and that's simply not true. The best way that I could put this into terms would be like this, that God hates divorce like the family who has gone through a divorce hates divorce. He knows the wreckage. He knows the pain. He knows the everlasting effect. And he goes, you know, that's just not my plan. That's just not what I desire for you. I don't desire for you to have that heartache. I don't desire for you to have those awkward family Christmases for the next 50 years. It's not my best for you. But God loves people. And so if you've ever been through a divorce and you're here this morning, maybe the thing I want you to hear the most this morning is that God loves you. And if someone's misused that verse in your life, introduce me to them and I'd be happy to punch them in the throat on your behalf because God loves you. But he hates divorce. And it's because of the wreckage that it creates for generations. And see, one of the things we teach, so we have to talk about it this morning, 
because I used to be way more legalistic about this in my life. But the more I pursue Jesus and the more I pursue the gospel, the more I become more like him and I get rid of my foolish thoughts and I get reformed in my thinking. And see, one of the things the Bible says is that God doesn't like divorce, but there are times that it's permissible. And because we love the word of God, because we value Jesus, uh, we teach what the Bible says. And so I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about times that the Bible says that it's actually permissible for divorce to happen. Maybe the best way to think about it is in what circumstances are the promises or the wedding vows able to be broken. So I want to share six of them that I found in scripture with you this morning. The first one is this, death. When you make a vow with your spouse, you say, till death do us part. So when, one of the, when either the husband or the wife dies, the marital vow ends because they fulfilled it, till death do us part. Both Romans 7, uh, uh, 1 to 2 and 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine would say this, that when it ends. In fact, one of my favorite interviews, somebody interviewed Billy and Ruth Graham, and somebody asked Ruth, because Billy was kind of a hard guy to deal with sometimes, they said, Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? And she said, no, but I have thought about killing him several times. So you can't kill your spouse, but sometimes... What the Bible tells us is that if one of the spouses die, that the marriage covenant is over, which also frees up the widow to go be remarried. And that that's what the Bible says. Number two, adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, Matthew 5, 32, that adultery is grounds for divorce. That when someone cheats or has relationships with someone that's not their spouse, it's like putting a torpedo in the hull of the marriage covenant. And that it blows open such a big hole that God says, hey, that's actually, uh, that's actually room. There's, there's some room there for you to go, you know what? This, this vow has been ended, and we can start over again. Number three is sexual immorality. Matthew chapter 5, 32 and 19, 9. This is a broader category than the one before it. That there are things that people do that are wicked, habitual, and vile. And then God says that sometimes if someone's heart is so hard, or if they are so into a sin that they can't get over, there's actually things that would end the marriage covenant because one of the spouses would choose not to get rid of that sin, but habitually do it over and over and over again. Number four is abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 24. Uh, in this instance, what, what, what this Paul says is that uh, maybe you have a, a couple that gets married as two non-believers one of them gets saved, begins to follow Jesus, becomes more and more like Jesus. The other spouse says, hey, I liked you a lot more when you weren't like Jesus. I kind of liked that lifestyle we had. And so one of the spouses leaves and says, I'm out of here. And what God says is, hey, if your spouse abandons you, that you're no longer held to the marriage covenant because your spouse abandoned the covenant. Uh, number five is treachery. I thought that was an interesting one. Mal Malachi 2, 14 to 16. So abuse, violence, dangerous behavior. Uh, if your safety's at risk over and over and over again, that there's actually grounds and room for divorce. Last but not least, hardness of heart. Matthew chapter 9, 18, Mark 10, 5, that if your spouse's heart is just so hard towards you and there's no change, that eventually that would lead to an area where you could actually get divorced. Now, here's, here's what I, I want you to think about, is that even though the scripture says that it's permissible, that there's areas where it's okay, 
Uh, here's what I would have you think about. Don't get a divorce just because you want a divorce. Get a divorce because you have to get a divorce. But I think there's something significant about that long-term loving as long as you can, pursuing as long as you can, holding out as long as you can, hoping that things will get better. But there are some instances where divorce is both permissible and acceptable. I would just hope that as the people of God, our attitude would say, hey, our marriage covenants end because we had to, not just because we wanted them to and we thought there was fun stuff on the other side. Here's the main point of Malachi chapter 2, 10 to 17, and it's this. It's that a good legacy always beats a good time. A good legacy always beats a good time. And see, there's thousands and probably millions of books on parenting and raising children and making an impact that lasts. But one of the things that God reveals to Israel and to us is this is that the greatest thing you can do for your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren is to love Jesus and then to love your spouse with a gospel-centered, Christ-like, lasting love. That what God says he's after is godly offspring. And what he's really saying is, hey, parents, you have such an influence, you have so much significant, you put so much input into your children's life that your marriage will actually have an influence for generations to come. And what happens is, is we tend to think about the weekend. We tend to think about the next fun thing, the next thrill. We we tend to think about when will I find a little bit of joy and excitement. And what God thinks about is the next few thousand years of kids coming up generation after generation after generation. Now let's just be completely real for a second. The reality is, most of our lives is lived in the mundane. Okay, let's just be real for a second. Most of our lives are lived in the mundane. Here's what I mean by that. The average person, depending on what shift you work, some of y'all get up real like at like two in the morning, and I, I salute you because I couldn't do that. But you get up at some point, you grab a cup of coffee. You spend a little time with Jesus, you say hi to your kids or your spouse, and you go to work. And you go to work and you, and you punch the time card and you do what you have to do and you try to cross things off your to-do list and there's bills that have to be paid, there's chores that have to get done, there's groceries that have to be bought, there's people who have to be fed. We're in Boone County, Illinois, so we'll include there's animals that have to be fed, there's messes that have to be cleaned up, and there's problems that have to be troubleshot. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted and you go to bed and you wake up and you do the same thing tomorrow. And see, the reality is that we try to look for is a good time and hey, when am I going to get the thrill? But here's what God is saying to us. Don't miss this. He's saying, hey, dad, you have the capability to impact your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids by the way you love Jesus by the way you love your wife, by the way you love your family, by the way you go to work, by the way you provide for your family, by the way you lead your home, by the way you go to bed exhausted every night and you wake up the next morning and you do it again, that you can literally change the world. If you'll love God 
love your spouse and love your family. And he says, hey, mom, don't forget, most of life is the mundane. Most of life is punching the time card, loving those kids, cleaning up their messes, dealing with them day in and day out. But don't forget, you have the capability to impact your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives, and your great-grandchildren's lives by the way you love Jesus, by the way you love your husband, by the way you love your kids, by the way you go to work, by the way you provide for your family, by the way you live in your home, you can change the world. See, all of us have this desire to change the world. But we live in a generation that wants to change the world. Nobody wants to do the work, though, to change the world. And what God reminds us is it's the day in and the day out that lasts for generations. And see, this is what's really important about the book of Malachi, I think, is that God speaks through Malachi and then goes silent for 400 years. So God's saying, hey, I'm going to sign off in a little bit because we're going to have some anticipation for the arrival of Jesus. And God goes, one of the things I need to tell you, one of the things I have to communicate to you is don't forget how important your love for Jesus is, how important the love of your spouse is. It'll change the world. I know you don't feel it today, but it will. And so if there's only two things people could say about you, I would suggest to you that maybe these would be the two most important things. That at the end of your life, or years from now when a guy like me is tracing through the family geology, genealogy, that they would look back and say, you know the thing about him? He really loved Jesus. And he really loved his wife. And he really loved his family. And they'd say, you know the thing about her? She really loved Jesus. She really loved her husband, and she really loved her family. See, there's kind of this tension. On one hand, what God reminds us in Malachi is about what, what are we pursuing today? What are we living for today? What, what are we putting our heart towards today? But on the other hand, the question is, what kind of legacy will you leave behind? Generations from now. What kind of ripples and waves will you leave behind? Our faithful, covenant-keeping God speaks to you. And he speaks to me through the scripture today. And I think what he says to us is because of Jesus and the relationship he has given us, be faithful. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your family and trust God that it will last and leave a legacy for generations. Let me pray for us. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.